Broadcasting from Youngstown, Ohio, this is the MV Red Podcast, the show where we talk about news and politics impacting the Mahoning Valley, the state of Ohio, and the USA. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, find us on your favorite podcast streaming app or visit our website, www.mvred.com. If you want to share your opinion with us, please email info at mvred.com, as we would love to hear from you. Now, let's get things started. Here are your hosts, Michael Metzinger and Dane Davis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the eighth episode of the MV Red Podcast. This is Michael Metzinger, and joining me... For another exciting episode is Dane Davis. So, Dane, how are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm eating a uh, Stouffer's um, pepperoni uh, pizza. It's but they have a name because uh, they have this like weird shape. Is it a French bread? French bread pizza? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Yep. I'm actually a big fan of those things. I'm, I'm not a big fan of it, much frozen food, but that's one of the few things I do buy. Right. I was. Um, well, I don't want to jump ahead, but let me give you the uh, the spoiler. I was at Walmart stockpiling for coronavirus, and um, <laughs> I was walking through the food section, and I saw these. I'm like, man, I haven't had these since I was like a 17 year old uh, playing video games all night long, and I threw them in the cart, and uh, I'm eating one now. There you go. There you go. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So on t- this episode, we're going to talk about the coronavirus. Uh, it really seemed to take off in the last week in terms of its economic impact on the U.S. because the stock market really tanked over the last week plus. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the big South Carolina primary that just happened yesterday evening. Big win for Vice President Joe Biden. And so we'll talk about the Biden-Bernie, kind of how it's setting up right now, and Super Tuesday. And then... We're going to tie that in to Mayor Pete, who in the last few hours has announced that he's actually dropping out of the race. So we'll talk about Mayor Pete. That was a bit surprising, at least from my perspective. Then we're going to talk about some local politics. A, a big part there is the 13th congressional district, the Republican primary. I believe there's seven or eight Republicans duking it out for the distinguished honor of running against nine or ten time incumbent Democrat Congressman Tim Ryan. And then uh, we'll conclude with a little bit more discussion on these uh, Stouffer's pepperoni French bread pizzas. So, <laughs> so Dan, I do want to know, I guess, what are your initial thoughts on this coronavirus? Are you concerned at all? Or, uh, you know, what are, what, what are your thoughts? Well, let me bifurcate this into two separate uh, ways of looking at it. One is the virus itself. And one is the economic implications of the virus, right? One thing I think it's really important for people to understand, especially if you're a young person and you have retirement savings, do not try to game the market, right? Don't try to buy and don't use your 401k and make it like a fund. Don't try to buy and sell. If you have an IRA, you should have an IRA. You should be filling it if you can. Um, just, you know, leave the money in there and let it grow, Okay. Here's what you need to be doing. If you're in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, you should have mostly equities. As you move into your 50s and 60s, you start selling off those equities. Those are stocks, and you start buying bonds. 
bonds are very stable. Um, commercial bonds, et cetera, they give you a guaranteed 3 to 5% return. When you're in your 60s and 70s and you're ready to retire, you mostly should have blue chip stocks and bonds, right? Therefore, when a market volatility like this happens, you should either, either A, be old enough that you don't have to deal with this because you have bonds and the bonds are fine, they're going to pay out, or B, you're not going to retire until 30 years later. So it doesn't matter. So one thing I really want to stress people is do not panic, don't sell stocks, etc. Even if it's an economic recession or depression as a result of this virus, in 30 or 40 years, no matter how bad it gets now, I'm pretty confident that the, the global economy will be bigger, everybody will be wealthier, uh, at least the American economy will be better, so stocks should be higher. So that's number one. Number two, when it comes to the virus itself, I'm of uh, two mindsets. Um, I think that it could get really bad, right? Like, I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm an economist, but it could be bad because you know, tourism shutting down in Europe, supply chains getting hit in East Asia, and then in America, who knows how that's going to get in America. But if those two regions, East Asia with production, Europe with tourism, get hit hard, I think it's likely that those economies were already pretty fragile. They could be thrown into a recession, right? Um, and so I think we could be looking at a global recession. I don't know, but it's definitely possible. But I, I really don't know. I don't know if this is going to be really bad or if I don't know if this is going to short-term blip and people are overreacting. I, I honestly don't know. I know people shouldn't sell stocks, stocks either way. Yeah, I think – and I guess I, I look at the U.S. market and it has been chugging along for the last few months and – I think part of this might be investors looking for a reason to sell off. I, I just think it was kind of chugging along a little too robust, and it's been hitting records. It seemed like up until, what, a week and a half ago, it seemed to be hitting new records almost every other day. So I think part of it was a reason to sell off. Now it's now we're in the correction territory. I don't know if it's down 11 12% off of its highs, but people got to put it in perspective. We're pretty much at – where we were in I think late November, maybe early December of twenty nineteen. So I mean that's just four four months ago. That that's kind of where we're at. So I understand how people like to panic, but I think people at our age especially, this is not the time to panic at all. Uh the market will uh, correct itself. Now in regards to this virus, uh, I guess we shall see. I think some of the 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 procedures or actions put in place by Trump early on with restricting travel to China, I didn't know what to make of it initially, but maybe that was actually a pretty smart idea. But with it spreading from China to other countries, especially in Europe, there is definitely a concern there because if if you were to prevent Americans from traveling to Europe, that's going to have a, even a more crippling impact, I think, on our economy than just China itself. So that is something of concern. I think another concern, economically speaking, is going to be the supply chain issues for a lot of businesses where they might purchase stuff and it might take three to six months to end up coming to the U.S. One thing, I guess, that comes to mind with kind of a local impact would be the fireworks uh, producers because uh, or fireworks uh, retailers, uh, I would think this is a time of the year where they have a lot of their orders in, trying to get some inventory over from China. I think that's going to have a huge impact 
on uh, how our 4th of July's look. Obviously, they have plenty in stock, I'm sure. But that, that's something that kind of rings a bell. But I think we really won't know the ultimate impact to our economy for probably a good three to f- three, four months out. Have a better idea, I think, in the second quarter of did the virus slow down? I guess that's the hope. And then secondly, how is that impacting the inventory and, and the supplies of our businesses? So we'll see what happens. I, I'm not overwhelmingly concerned about this as of yet. Uh, I think Americans should be paying much more closer attention to the symptoms of, of a flu, and that kills. That's killed many, 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 many thousands uh, more people than this coronavirus in the U.S. Because I think we've had one fatality in Washington, but. I guess we shall see, but I, I do think part of it was just the market's looking for a reason uh, to kind of sell off there. But hopefully it's it's temporary, and within a few months we could start moving in the right direction again. So here's my question, right? What do the people that were against the China tariffs have to say now? Because, you know, a, a big part of the Trump revolution, it, the Republican Party elites kind of got disconnected from the average Republican and even the average voter. And Trump made an argument. He's like, why do we have to outsource our industry? Like, what, what's the upside? Theoretically, we get cheaper goods, but we lose a lot in the process. Maybe the costs outweigh the benefits. And, you know, Trump put on tariffs on steel, aluminum, and 15% tariffs on China. He put tariffs on solar panels and washing machines, et cetera, et cetera. So he started to put on tariffs. And the U.S. economy has done great. It's done gangbusters, right? Every libertarian screeched, right? And they said, this will be the end of the U.S. economy. We're going to go into a depression. The U.S. economy did fine. Um, and I actually think that part of the strength in the U.S. economy is directly a result of tariffs. Now we have this coronavirus, and supply chains are being threatened for everything from, like, widgets, right, or uh, clothes, to things like pharmaceutical products, children's Tylenol, um, you know, prescription drugs. And it makes you ask the question, why are so many of the products we need dependent on being made in China? Like, I I can understand something like very low cost being made in China. I don't think I support it, but whatever. But pharmaceutical products, those should be made here or close to home or in like an allied first world country like Canada or the UK or or something like that. Um, So... I think that this is the coronavirus is a really good argument against globalism and globalization. Um, I don't think America wants to be an isolationist or and not trade with the rest of the world. I mean, I eat English cheeses and I drink a lot of French wine, and um, so you know, I, I I contribute to our trade deficit. But but we should be manufacturing far more at home, and that was Trump's point. And I think he's absolutely right on that. This coronavirus, you know, makes that point pretty explicitly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's a good reminder to these companies that thought outsourcing these types of things overseas was a good idea just for the almighty dollar. But now we're seeing um, the risk that that happens if by doing so, and we'll see if if some of them reconsider and revisit this in the future because certainly this could have uh, crippling impacts on certain companies that rely overwhelmingly if if a vast 75 80 percent of their inventory is coming from overseas uh it's going to have massive impact on their bottom lines and hopefully this is the the unfortunate reminder to them that 
there's always a risk in do, doing just that. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I, I think I'm hoping, I'm cautiously optimistic that the markets will calm down over the next week, week and a half. I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I think a lot of it's going to depend on the number of cases, especially out of China, see kind of where the numbers are there and if it spreads even further into Europe. But so far, the impacts here in the U.S., knock on wood, have, haven't have been too, too bad. Obviously, it's unfortunate to have anybody lose a life uh, with that individual in Washington. But uh, so far, we, we've been okay. So we shall see. But I, I'm, I'm hoping this this does correct itself out here in due time. But, I mean, there's been other types of these things that happened in the past. I think there was one that even happened – in 09, I forget which one it was. I don't know if it was Ebola or SARS or one of them. You're thinking swine flu. Oh, swine flu. Fine. And that thing, that killed like tons and tons and tons of people. And at the time, like the, obviously the markets were in the, in the shitter to begin with, but it wasn't like a huge impact on the overall markets itself like it is now. Um, so I, I, like I said, I think the markets were kind of looking for a reason to sell off and this, at least in my eyes, may have been, been that reason. So anything else you want to add on the coronavirus It's something we'll have to watch, pay close attention to here in the weeks ahead. I just, I really don't think I, we know what will be the full implications, um, of what's going on. So, uh, we'll, we'll have to see, but I, I'm, I'm watching it closely. I, I think it's, there's, there are a lot of unknowns at the, at this moment. So. Oh. But I think the one thing is to make more things here in America, America first, America first, right? That's right. All right. So let's move on and we're going to talk about, let's talk about South Carolina. So last night, Joe Biden, who was in the basement, who, Looked like he was his whole campaign was in flames. Come comes back with a resounding win, nearly gets fifty percent of the votes, fifty percent of the vote in South Carolina, and is now just a few delegates behind Bernie Sanders in the race for the Democrat uh, candidacy. So, what are your overall thoughts on that? I'm actually here. I'm curious to listen to hear your take on it. I have some spicy things, but I want to see what Michael thinks about everything. Well, I, I think for one, this was do or die for Joe Biden and his poll numbers after Nevada where he got slaughtered. They did seem to move south a little bit. But I will say this after watching that last debate, even though he said 150 million people were killed by guns in the U.S., which obviously is half the United States population, I think that would be a major story. But nonetheless, I honestly thought his debate performance last week was probably one of his strongest there were times where maybe he came across as angry, but he actually had a little bit of passion and fire under him, and maybe he realized that this was make do or die for him. So I think that played a role in maybe alleviating some fears that he was kind of bit losing it, which one could argue that maybe he is because he still says some questionable things quite frequently. The other thing is I think he showed that not only is well, Mayor Pete, who we're going to talk about in a minute, who dropped out this evening, not only was he vulnerable, there could be some vulnerabilities with Bernie Sanders in, in the African-American vote. And Joe Biden, for whatever reason, 
from for months now has been polling very well with the African American vote. And once that Congressman Clyburn, I believe is his name, threw his support behind Biden, it seemed like that, at least from reading the exit polls, seemed like that had a significant impact. At least fifty percent, I think, of African Americans said that either had some some of an impact or a substantial impact on their vote. So I think that kind of played a role. And then and then lastly, I think it's it's kind of do or die time for the the Democrat establishment, especially in that state, they kinda of had to do something. They could either support Mayor Pete or maybe Tom Steyer. But to stop Bernie Sanders, because let me tell you, there is definitely a push to stop Bernie Sanders and there are grave concerns among the, the establishment and the mainstream media of a, of a Sanders presidency. And I think a lot of people just decided, well, we're going to have to go with Biden and maybe he's our last resort to stop Sanders. But I'm not 100% sure. I think maybe we'll know a little bit more come Super Tuesday. But I, I wasn't surprised that he won. I thought he'd win big, but I didn't think he would win that big. So I was surprised. <clears throat> I was surprised he won as big as he did. Um. Sorry, I mean this show for pizza. It's really good. <laughs> um, the thing to keep in mind is that the media is not a neutral third party, right? The media lies, uh, and the media is biased. Um, in the media, you know the big, the big three networks, MSNBC, CNN, they are all establishment Dems, right? They're very cozy with the established Democratic Party, the establishment of the Democratic Party, and so they want they don't want Bernie Sanders to win, right? They just Bernie Sanders is not the establishment candidate. Let's put it that way. They have every interest to overhype the Biden win to generate this comeback story. Is one, it makes for an interesting story for people to follow, and two, ideologically, a Joe Biden is more closer to the average media reporter, or more crucially, media reporter, than a Bernie Sanders is. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Regardless of how well Biden could have done in South Carolina, he was already set up to have this narrative where he's coming back and it's a contested race. I think if you look at the Democrats, they need two things to win. They need the black turnout in the inner cities and they need suburban women. Um, And here's why they need both of those things. They can get all the Hispanic vote they want. The Hispanic vote, though, is largely concentrated in states that are already pretty blue. Uh, California... Nevada. Um, the Hispanic vote is because it's Cuban. Uh, the Hispanic vote in Texas is, is kind of also unique because there are a lot of Tejanos who vote Republican. So they can up the Hispanic vote, but it just makes California bluer. But the black vote is crucial because if you get a strong black turnout, a state like Ohio will flip to blue. Uh, Michigan flips to blue. Uh, Indiana can flip to blue. Pennsylvania flips to blue. Uh, even North Carolina will flip to blue or Georgia, right? Because you have inner city blacks, right? Surrounded by suburban whites uh, and rural whites. Uh, so they need to boost black turnout as much as possible. This is crucial. They also need suburban white women for whatever reason, uh, because this is like the big swing group, right? They swung to the Democrats in, in 18 and helped deliver the Congress. And they need them to stay on the, the Democrats because those two combined will win all these Midwestern states and guarantee them victory. The problem that they have is that Bernie Sanders does not poll well 
with blacks, specifically with the older black community. Um, you know, the the people, I would say the boomer generation and, you know, like the Generation Xers don't seem very keen on Bernie Sanders overall and in particularly black Americans, right? And Bloomberg, the great moderate hope, doesn't seem to pull well with him either because he threw, like, every black person in New York City in jail. Um, and when he threw in jail, he had the police to stop and frisk, right? So he hasn't won a lot of friends in that community, as they, they would say diplomatically. So the last guy, the, the guy left standing is Joe Biden. Now, it's interesting because Joe Biden is, is kind of an inept and not a very good politician. He's kind of got this reputation as being this, like, great moderate hope and this charismatic politician. But Joe Biden's never won an election outside of the state of Delaware until, t- you know, yesterday when he mm-hmm. was in the Carolina primary. Good point. Uh, Joe Biden ran for president in 1988. He plagiarized a speech from, I think it was Michael Foote. Uh, British Labor Party leader. He was a nobody on the political scene. He ran for president in 2008. He was still a nobody. He was pulling like 2 or 3%, right? He was like Tulsi Gabbard tier. Uh, and then Joe Biden needed a bland white guy that's kind of folksy to uh, kind of calm the, the, the you know, the, the Midwesterners down. And, and so that he picked Joe Biden. Joe Biden did that job well. Um, and Barack Obama won the president. And Joe Biden was, I guess you could say, a, a decent vice president in terms of not policy wise. I'm just saying, like in terms of what he brought to the ticket, but he definitely added something to the ticket, right? Mm-hmm. And then since then, he's just—he's not a good politician. He's incompetent, but he does have the support of the black community because he backed their man Obama, and he—he uh, he wants to support Obama. So the Democrats are between a rock and the hard place. Do they nominate the guy that has dementia who's going senile? but gets black people to vote for him? Or do they nominate the, the communist who's 78 years old and had a heart attack? Or do they nominate the billionaire corrupt, uh, well, I wouldn't say corrupt, but the billionaire oligarch who just, you know, vis- vis- visually disdains anybody who makes under $3 million a year, right? Mm-hmm. They pick, and that's where they are right now. So I, I said a lot. I'll turn it back over to you. No, I, I think... I think you bring up some good points. Let me see. I was checking in while you were talking because now Super Tuesday, I didn't even realize this. I should know this. I thought it was like a week and a half away. It's in two or three days. So um, two days actually. So I think there's something like 15 states if my math is correct. But I was just checking out 538 because they have their their little models and everything like that where they kind of figure out who they think is ahead in which state. And up to last night, they had Biden fairly close in a number of the southern states. And then after last night, his odds improved quite a bit. Enough so that he's still going to get beat up, I think, fairly bad in California in terms of delegates, but he can make up for it in maybe some other states or keep it somewhat close. Um, It's going to be really fascinating to watch. My ultimate hope, though, is I wanted somebody else to emerge as this competitor to to Sanders. I was kind of surprised with how Sanders rose. He kind of was that... You know, we had Kamala early on, and then they had Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Pete, and they all had their week or two of, of maybe can being considered the front runner. And Sanders got it at the right point in time, leading up to Iowa, and then he carried that momentum up into New Hampshire, and then he slaughtered the the, the squad in, in, in Nevada. 
So he kind of got the momentum at the right point in time. But I always thought he wasn't necessarily just going to run away with it. I, I felt as though there was going to have to be somebody to step up and, and compete against him. Now, I honestly thought Joe Biden was going to fizzle out at some point. He just – leading up to, I would say, Nevada, he had a really poor performance in New Hampshire – and it just seemed like, okay, this guy doesn't have it. So I was impressed with his win last night. Um, but it seems as though from looking at this this setup, uh, they're projecting Sanders might net 540 delegates, Biden 395, and then Bloomberg and Warren kind of get 194 and 133 respectively. So it's enough that I think – by Biden doing so well in South Carolina, it might push him across the finish line in a few other states on Super Tuesday. Keep this delegate margin from uh, Sanders within looks like about 150 or so. Keep it close enough that it makes it that much more difficult for Sanders to get to the ultimate majority. I looked at their model as well in terms of who will win the Democratic primary, and now it's up to 64% odds that nobody's going to end up getting – the majority of delegates heading into convention. So me personally, I love this because I want this turmoil to continue. I want these debates that expose them for who they are. You got a a, a nut job in, in Sanders who I admire him for his – he's he's fairly honest with, with everything he says. He's a straight shooter. He's a socialist, and he doesn't shy away from it. Um, but he's a radical, and there's no, no way around it. Then you have Biden who – Outside of the last debate, I think has performed very poorly in many debates and just he, – he just says things that leave you scratching your head. And then who who even knows what's going to happen with Bloomberg, Warren, and Klobuchar? But I want this race to continue. I want them to continue to, to go at each other, expose themselves for who they are because I just think in the in the long run it's leaving a lot of independents or maybe some of those Republicans or – um, who aren't big fans of, of Trump, they see what the alternative is, and I feel as though they might be able to justify their support for Trump come November. Um, who do you think ultimately wh- – what do you think it ultimately happens at the end of the day? That's, it, it's a really good question, but I feel as though if Sanders is within – a couple hundred delegates, maybe 300, 400 delegates of the 2000, it's going to be really hard to stop unless Biden is like really close. I feel as though Sanders is going to find a way and maybe he he works out a deal with some moderate on the ticket to make it happen. The, The concern would be this. If you take it away from Sanders again, that youth vote, which is really the core of his support, the youth vote and maybe those old 70s, 60s and 70s hippies that like socialism, they're going to have a tough time supporting any other candidate because I think we've even talked about it on this podcast. College-age kids and kids in our generation, probably from I would say 18 to maybe 35 who are big on Sanders, they're not big on Joe Biden whatsoever. And quite frankly, I would have a hard time believing they would support a Bloomberg or a Klobuchar. They might support a Warren because Warren and Sanders are alike in many ways. So if you take it away from Sanders, you're going to alienate a large chunk of support for the Democrats that they need that is – 
already vulnerable to begin with because they're not a reliable voting group. So the flip side of that is if you leave Sanders on top and he gets the nomination, then you have an opportunity where you could be alienated the African-American vote, which you just mentioned is critical, especially in these states that they need to flip, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan those types of states, and then even some down in the south, um, like Georgia especially is one they're hoping that they could flip. These are states that if you have Sanders at the top of the ticket and those African-Americans don't turn out like they – like in 2016, like they didn't turn out in the numbers they needed to to support Hillary Clinton, it's going to have detrimental effects on them and even down ballot I think as well. So uh, to, to answer your question, I'm really not sure. I think we'll have a better picture after Tuesday as to maybe how this shapes up. If Biden really has a, a robust 48 hours and, and makes uh, some surprise moves and has some good results on Super Tuesday, it's going to really make this race interesting in the months ahead. Well, so, Michael, let me ask you this. Of the three remaining main candidates, uh, Biden, <clears throat> Bloomberg, and Bernie, right, BBB, all of them, by the way, over the age of 77, which is ridiculous to think about. Uh, who do you think is the most likely to drop out at this point? Most likely to drop out, I would have to say if Bloomberg, after dumping hun- what hundreds of millions of dollars into this race, after his horrific first debate performance, if he does not do well in Super Tuesday, because that was the day... Those were the initial states that he was going to jump into. If he doesn't do well, I would imagine he would be the initial one to drop out. I think Bloomberg made a critical error running as a Democrat. Maybe he thought this was the better opportunity for him to become president. But I honestly think in this day and age, with how far left the Democrats have gone and what with some in the middle who just maybe just don't like Trump and his personality, they might like his policies, don't like his personality. I think Bloomberg may have been better fit to run as an independent, maybe screw this race up just like Ross Perot did back in 92. I think that could have had a greater impact on this race and him running. I just think he's – it looks like he's just going to fizzle out here unless he, he does better than than – we're expecting him to do on Super Tuesday. All right, Dane. So I think personally that Bloomberg would be the first to drop out. So what are your thoughts? Um, I think that there are two separate questions. I know I've used that phrase once already, but one is who will drop out willingly and who will drop out unwillingly. Um, and unwillingly like the the impolite thing to say, and I'm, I I want to be very clear. I'm not wishing ill upon anybody, right? But these are men that are 78, 77 years old. Bernie Sanders had a heart attack. Joe Biden's not mentally the most stable. I'd say Bloomberg's relatively healthy, but he had a heart surgery of some sort. I think mm-hmm. uh, there's a real question as to you know could the stress of the campaign, which is very intensive, affect their health? Uh, I don't know who necessarily that will affect, but I think that's one question. It's most likely to drop out, right? And given what we know now, I have to say it, it is Bloomberg. I, I think you're right. I think he, but I don't, I think that probability is still low. Of the three, he's most likely to drop out because Biden will get delegate. And Biden will be able to 
I don't think he'll have necessarily have the most delegates, or you know, I don't think he'll have a plurality or a majority of delegates. But I think he'll be able to get to the convention. Bloomberg, it seems like he won't have a ton, um, but I still think he doesn't drop out because he has the money to go all the way, and his hope is that if there's a contested convention, he can kind of come out on top. So I don't know. I, I don't think any of them drop out right away. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a different question to kind of go along with that. Which of the candidates remaining on the Democrat side, do you believe poses the greatest challenge to Trump? That's a great. I, you know, I was going to ask you that actually uh, before this this thing. Um, I actually think that I think Biden. Uh, no, I gosh, of the remaining yes. three, assuming it's those three. Uh, I'm going to go with an out-of-the-box opinion and say that Bernie Sanders does. Now, everybody is saying that Bernie Sanders is the weakest of the three Democrats. But let me – I don't know if I even really believe the argument I'm making, but I want to make it. Trump was argued to be the weakest Republican. But if you squinted your eyes, you could see ways in which he was actually the strongest Republican because he would appeal to new voters. His issue set was different from the standard Republican issue set, right? Bernie Sanders, it's kind of the same thing. Bernie Sanders could potentially turn on a lot of disaffected voters who are kind of apolitical but don't like the system and aren't content with it. And moreover, if you have an economic meltdown of some sort and banks get bailed out again, you're going to have a surge in populist anger. And somebody like Bernie Sanders would be well capitalized to take that on. So I, I also think Bernie Sanders could play well potentially in the Midwest. Uh, he could, you know, his economic message may resonate with working class people um he's he, he said the right things on trade and to win a state like michigan to win a state like pennsylvania and wisconsin so i think i'm going to make the off the wall prediction say bernie sanders is actually their strongest candidate you, you appeal to working class people plus you have a surge of millennial support yes the 10 percent establishment that you see on tv doesn't like him but the 90 percent of ordinary people do you have some economic weakness, and he comes in. That's that's my counter counter conventional wisdom take. Okay, no, I think I think you bring up a good point. So I guess amongst these three, and it is kind of fascinating. Here's a little fact to throw at you: Joe Biden, among those three, among the three, I guess front runners, if you want to say, on the Democrat side, is now the youngest of the three. Yeah, and that says a lot that the Democrat Party that preaches diversity. And I know I said this on maybe our second or third episode about the Democrats. A lot of them have been quick to point out about the Republicans or the party of old white men. What's it say about them that their three remaining top-tier candidates are also old white men over the age of 77? It's remarkable. To the question, though, I'll be honest with you. Not only do I agree with you, I, I, I firmly believe Sanders is the one that poses the great, greatest challenge to Trump. Here's why. One, the youth vote. These people, if, if, one, if, if there's a candidate out there who could get the youth vote, it's Sanders. And this is a, a voting block that historically has not been reliable. But I think they will come out, and they will come out in big numbers for Sanders, and it would be enough to push them over the finish line in a number of these close states, especially in, in the Great Lakes. Not that um, you know these are the most educated states, but you could definitely make the argument maybe around Philadelphia, getting support there. 
maybe around Michigan State, Lansing, uh, Ann Arbor, and then especially in Wisconsin, Madison. I have great concerns about Sanders. The other thing is, you know, I've heard some people say maybe he's the populist of the left, and, and, and you could make that argument. But the fact of the matter is he's a straight shooter for the left. I don't like anything of what he says, but he has been very straight from the beginning. He doesn't shy away from who he is. And it's easy to sugarcoat who you are with when you're scared of, of maybe repercussions for your opinions. But he doesn't shy away from the fact that he's a socialist. He calls him a socialist, and he has historically called himself a socialist. And despite himself calling himself a socialist, he's been able to become the leader currently, I guess, in terms of total delegates. And one can certainly make the argument that he's a front runner. So I do have concerns about Sanders. The other thing to be said is I understand the media has great concerns, especially the 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 Democrat establishment and the mainstream media. But I think we should have learned our lesson four years ago. The, the, the mainstream media is so out of touch with the average American voter, and they continue to forget that fact. They continue to go deeper and deeper into these blue bubbles. They, they just – they just talk with the same people on their shows. They never go out there in the heartland and just talk with average American people about the issues and, and where they're leaning. They just stay in New York, stay in D.C. So, uh, you know, the media could, could push push Biden and this, uh, this narrative that Biden's got momentum and all that. But I do have concerns about Sanders. He's, he, like I said, he's a straight shooter. He says what he believes in. A lot of people don't like what he believes in, but there's a reason he has the support he has. And I just have great fears that if he is their nominee, he's going to bring out huge numbers among the young vote, and it would be enough to, to push him across the finish line. Yeah, you know, I am worried. Um, the The arguments against Bernie Sanders it remind me a lot of Trump, the arguments against Trump. Now, I don't think Bernie is the Trump of the left. I think Trump had a lot of charisma and, and special things that made him but he's the most like figure right and i do have this feeling that republicans are kind of poo-pooing bernie sanders and saying nobody would ever vote for him. he's a socialist well millennials are socialists um millennials have been not have not been raised on the horrors of socialism millennials don't even know where the soviet union was on the map right let alone all the deficiencies and problems my fear is that people are kind of downplaying Bernie Sanders and he's actually a much stronger candidate than people assume. That's like, I always thought that Pete Buttigieg, right. To, to make the opposite case, I thought he'd be an extremely weak candidate against Trump. He would fail to turn out minorities. He would fail to support, like he'd fail to rally, you know, uh, people in the suburbs. He, the people, the, the people that would vote for Pete Buttigieg would be like your Kent state professor, uh, and the people that live in Shaker Heights, right? But the people in Parma would not turn out for Judge. The people in, uh, in in Youngstown, right? They wouldn't really turn out for him. I thought he was the weakest candidate. Um, but the media loved Pete, right? Because he ideologically was akin to them. Um, in cultural class, he was from their culture and their class. Um, but Bernie Sanders, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. I could see two arguments. I could see him being destroyed, but I can also see him being the strongest one. I, I don't know. But I, I think people that underestimate him do so at their peril. Yes. Another thing I want to add, I think there's a lot of people on the right. You know, I listen to talk radio, and 
people, a lot of people who listen to talk radio are in that boomer generation, older. Um, I mean, I guess they're many of them are older white men, at least from what I could tell from listening on talk radio. They hear that word socialism, and among that generation, that is a word that would scare the crap out of people their age. But they don't understand that people our generation are open to that idea of socialism. And just because Bernie Sanders is a socialist doesn't mean he can't become president of the United States. And that is a concern of mine. I, I, I listen sometimes to Hugh Hewitt, and, and he he preaches this idea. He even voted, I think, he took a Democrat ballot in Virginia and voted for Sanders because he wants a stark choice. But again, I, I, I do have concerns when people who have this mindset that socialism, it, it's an easy victory for the right. I don't, I don't quite agree with that. And I, the, the risk of having him on the ticket and him winning and possibly the Democrats taking control of the Senate and retaining the House should have huge concerns among those on the right. So that, I guess that's just my overall thoughts. But I think people need to remember. They need to be willing to listen to the other side and hear what people have to say. And I think there are some on the right who are very close-minded and not willing to hear why Bernie Sanders appeals to voters. And I think if you listened, you'd have a better understanding of why maybe both of us have some concerns about him. The more and more I think about it, the more and more I, I am concerned that that he, not only could he end up being a nominee, but I do see a, a, a path for him becoming president. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I'm worried. Especially economic recession too. So real quick before we move on to talk uh, briefly about Mayor Pete, I did have a question from my cousin Nico Morjon, who who we had hoped that maybe he would be able to, to participate in, in part of this episode tonight, but he was unable to, and maybe in a future one we'll get him on. But he, he had a question about Mike Bloomberg, and I wanted to throw it out there. We could talk about it before we talk Mayor Pete. He said uh, Mike Bloomberg was pulling very well prior to the debates, and even after his lackluster debate performances, especially that first one, he is still generally pulling around third place in most of the Super Tuesday states. So he wants to know why we think what, what we think it says about the field and the voters that prior to seeing him in the debate or really knowing anything about him and his stances that he was doing so well. And I guess my first initial thoughts are he was using his money to frame this idea that he is the great kind of moderate type guy to bring everybody together. He's well-respected on both sides of the aisle. He did a lot of great things in New York City. So he tried to go out there with his money and paint this image of him as being this perfect type candidate, this focus group candidate that checks all the boxes to beat Trump and then – the debate happened, and Elizabeth Warren threw some political grenades at him, and uh, I think did major harm to his campaign, which I thought could have done quite well on Super Tuesday, to be honest with you. Well, I mean, Super Tuesday's not here yet, right? So I, I don't think it's fair to write uh, Mr. Bloomberg's obituary quite yet. Um, we'll see how well he does. Uh, I think that the the debate performance. Uh, was devastating to him the first one because people the it, it's 
you always want to have low expectations and then beat those low expectations, right? You never want to have high expectations. And then if you do just okay, you still fall short of expectations. And because of his massive media buy, he, I think that the hype was huge for uh, Bloomberg. And it, it, by skipping all of those early states, it's like skipping the prep for the final test and just weighing it, right? He's a smart guy, but he wasn't able to pull it off, and it looked it looked bad. And if somebody whose main claim to fame is competency looks incompetent in a debate with you know not exactly the most stellar of candidates up against him, then it kind of deflates the the candidacy. But but to go back to the original question, what's it say that he was able to do so well and not even not even run right? Like he was he was polling well before he ran. I think it just goes to show. Um, one, that he had a lot of money and that money can buy you attention and, and, and support. Two, that uh, Democrats are looking for somebody, I would say, even more moderate than uh, Joe Biden. Somebody who Joe Biden is actually a very left wing guy. I, I don't get this. Just because he has this folksy man doesn't mean he's actually great. Moderate. Great actually, point. That I think people fail to appreciate. But but I think people want somebody that's kind of like a Bill Clinton. Right. Um, who's kind of a fiscal conservative and, uh, you know, social moderate and just kind of in the center. Maybe not people in general, but the primary voters. And they thought Bloomberg was that guy, and he kind of, you know, he put himself out there as that. But then when he came across on stage, he didn't look like he was fiscally conservative. He just looked like he was a, a, a effing asshole, right? Like, that's, that was his whole thing. Like, he didn't even look like a moderate. He just looked like a dickhead. And... I think that's why it deflated his candidacy. Yeah, I, I think overall he just looked very – he looked annoyed up there, and I thought he was very ill-prepared for the attacks that were going to be thrown at him. I thought in that first minute, i got to give credit to Elizabeth Warren for oh. for going after him like that, and then it just continued and continued, and it just seemed like if you had – good people around you, he should have been ready for that. And there were times when the other candidates were talking and they would show him and he just seemed very annoyed and he would roll his eyes and just I, I, I thought those 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 shots on TV alone of just seeing that just showed that he just thinks maybe that he he who's gonna be able to buy his way to the nomination and it backfired so much for him. Um, so I guess we shall see kind of how it plays out on Super Tuesday with him. I know he's pinning a lot of his hopes on these states, and he spent tons and tons of money there. So, uh, you know, we shall see. But I, I appreciate Nico sending that question. I thought it was a good one. It was a, it, it, kind of a good thing to, to kind of take a step back and try to figure out why he had that support. So let's see here. Next, we want to talk Mayor Pete, who just announced a few hours ago that he was backing out. I guess my initial thoughts on this were uh, I do find it fascinating that he's backing out, and yet you have Elizabeth Warren, who the more and more I listen to her, the more delusional I think she is that if she thinks she has some sort of path, or I'm not sure what she's trying to do. Um, And you have Klobuchar still in the race. I mean, Mayor Pete nearly won Iowa, and he gave – uh, Bernie Sanders a run for his money in New Hampshire and after two week performances in, in Nevada and South Carolina he backs out I on the surface I feel as though something might be up there I, I, I just thought it was kind of premature for him to back out I know 
before the, there were any votes cast, he had some success actually raising some money. But I don't know if it was a money issue or it just seemed kind of strange to me that that he was he's backing out. But what are your initial thoughts on that? Um, well, we, we kind of covered this, but I want to say one, Elizabeth Warren is staying in because she wants to be Joe Biden's vice president. What she'll do is uh, she'll say, hey, you get my 10 percent of the delegates mix with your 30 percent. And, yeah, we've got 40 and I'll support you, but I get to be your vice president. Or she'll make the same offer to Bloomberg, right? Like she knows she's not going to win, but she wants to get a, a 15% of the delegates um, so that she can use those as a bargaining chip, which is smart. I would do the same thing. I would stay in all the way. If she has the money to do it, that's the big question. She has the money. That's why Elizabeth Warren's staying in and hasn't dropped out yet. Um, she at one point, don't forget, was their strongest candidate in terms of who was most likely to win the primary. Correct. She had a quick rock quick fall um the other thing what was the other issue oh pete Buttigieg. uh pete Buttigieg was somebody that the media loved right he's the opposite of bernie sanders those two exist on a spectrum not in terms of policy but just in terms of culture and class bernie sanders the media can't stand they hate him but the average man in the democratic party or average woman loves him right Pete Buttigieg, the media loves the elites at the Democrats, you know, the people that work at the Center for American Progress. They love Pete, but the average Democrat who's not a boomer with a 401k balance of at least a million dollars really doesn't care for him, doesn't do it for him. Him dropping out, uh, or he dropping out, I, I don't know. I, I, I basically, I, I think I once described Pete Buttigieg as like a Bank of America gay pride float. Um, and I think that that description is apt, right? He has all the soul of a PowerPoint template and, uh, you know, all the originality of, of a PowerPoint template, right? He's just whatever you want him to be, he will be it. And um, I, think he's, I think he's truly a reprehensible human being, not so much in what he's done, but just what he represents. He represents this entire class that has governed America uh, they feel entitled to govern this country, not in the virtue of anything that they've done, but their credentials, right? Uh, Pete Buttigieg didn't serve in Iraq. He went over and he was like part of some, uh, I mean, it is brave to go to Iraq, Afghanistan or wherever he went. I think it was Afghanistan. But he was a part of like uh, basically the back office where he was doing some something that we really don't know about today, paperwork, something like that. Um, he didn't. He didn't serve in the front lines. He didn't go through any of that, right? He got zoomed into this one position based on his degrees, based on his credentials, right? Two or three generations ago, the people that led this country, they knew the taste of combat. Uh, they'd been well trained. They could read classical Greek or classical Latin. They knew history. They knew Herodotus. Uh, they knew, you know, all the uh, great English writers and that. They were very educated. They were a true elite class. Today, we've been replaced by uh, people that go to Harvard because their dad bought them a spot, uh, or because you know their their mom donated you know twenty thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars, excuse me, to build a new science wing, and they take classes in why white people are bad and racist or responsible for every problem in the world. And they quote Harry Potter on Twitter every time a global problem emerges. And Pete represents that class. Actually, I think he's smarter than those types of people. But but he represents that class, right? These people that have credentials, but they don't have any real leadership qualities. And the fact that he was so arrogant to think that he could become president of the United States at age 37 
after doing a mediocre job of governing a forgotten uh, second-tier city, it just shows you the arrogance of that class. And the reason he got that arrogance is because he's part of that social class that is highly credentialized. Yeah, I think that's a good word to describe him, is that word of arrogance. I thought, I think your, maybe it was even your wife, posted something on Facebook that I thought she... Uh, she she really hit it right on was that she felt like um, the Mayor Pete campaign had like a, a room full of millennials who just were all about writing like the perfect one-liners. I thought in the debate, I mean, he would say all of the right things and he he was very savvy and he knew what to say. And then even threw in Spanish in the one debate that just really was just like, are you really throwing that out there? And I, I loved Aunt, uh, Klobuchar's response where she said, well, we can't all be as perfect as you. I think he thought he really was this perfect type political person saying all the right things. And the more and more I saw him, the more and more of a phony I thought he was. Uh, I had a coworker at work, or I have a coworker who's been high on Mayor Pete and some as to somebody who thought, could do well because he's looking at from the perspective of who seems most reasonable out there. And obviously when you you listen to him, he would spew a lot of far left things, but he would just kind of say it in a way that was somewhat comforting to maybe some more moderate people. And it's like who, and if you're watching from from the perspective of a conservative who on that stage, maybe doesn't sound so far out there on the loony bin, Mayor Pete sometimes sounded somewhat reasonable with what he would have to say. But the fact of the matter is he was the mayor of a 100,000-person city in South Bend, Indiana. And he, he had this unbelievable rise. And I, I think he really fold and conned a lot of people into this rise. It, it, maybe one day you could see him running for Senate in Indiana. I'm not even sure he would win that. Uh, he, he, he just was so – I just view him as a, a phony. A lot of what he would say, he, he'd say the right things, but he, he'd have nothing to back it up. And I guess another thought into, as to why he backed out, and just looking at the South Carolina exit polls, he got slaughtered, slaughtered among uh, the minority vote, like the non-white vote, African-American vote. He got 3%. And this was something that was lingering for months now. There were polls that showed him around 1% or 2%, and he never was able to rebound from that. And again, we've, we talked about Bernie with the young vote and, and Biden with the black vote. Well, uh, Mayor Pete had zero support among African Americans, and I think maybe part of it was that. But again, I just find the timing of this questionable unless he is against – Bernie, and he's hoping that his supporters will go to Biden or maybe Bloomberg. But I've seen some tweets with some people who – some polls that show second preference of his supporters, and it hasn't necessarily been a clear-cut anti-Bernie type vote. Actually, a few of them had Bernie as the top choice. So time will tell us that what kind of impact this has. But he had his little run. But if he wants to have a run again, I think he needs to have a more credible – uh, standing on the national level and, and and get in to at least the U.S. Senate in Indiana, and we can kind of go from there. But I, I just view him as a phony candidate. Yeah, I uh, you know there's people I disagree with politically. Bernie Sanders is one of them, but there's people. Um, I, 
and just stand, can't stand because of their personality. And, and, and Pete Buttigieg is one of them. I, I really cannot stand him. Actually, ironically, I think a lot of millennials hated uh, Pete for a lot of the reasons you mentioned. But yeah, there you yeah. go. So that's that's. I guess anything else. What are what are your predictions for Super Tuesday? Um, we'll, we'll we'll go with that before we talk a little bit of local politics. Um, I think uh, I'll just make this quick. I, I think it's a it's a surprisingly good night for Bernie, and I think that uh, Biden and Bloomberg split the moderate vote, but Bernie is stronger than people anticipate. Um, I don't know what that means in terms of actual numbers, but I think it's a good night for Bernie. And it's his uh, recovery. Yeah, I think I think the magic number is fifteen percent. And in order to get any delegates in the state, you need fifteen percent of the vote. And the, the state you really, really got to pay close attention to is California, where I think he's going to rack up huge margins. Will it be enough to keep maybe Biden under fifteen percent? Uh, I, I don't know. It's going to be tough. But if he does, he could really put um, Biden in a very, very difficult spot in the delegate race. So that's something to watch there. He might, Biden might do well in the Southern States and in a few other spots where maybe was somewhat close, but I think North Carolina, North Carolina, maybe Texas and a few others, you could see Biden doing well, but California is going to be the state to watch. And unfortunately that's going to be the one that's that the vote comes in the the latest. I'll probably not find out those results until Wednesday morning when I wake up. So we shall see, but uh, let's move on and Kind of the last topic we want to talk about is some local politics. There's a – actually, very surprisingly, there are seven or eight Republicans running for the candidacy to, uh, to, to get the nomination to run against Congressman Tim Ryan in the 13th Congressional District. Um, you have uh, – I think his name is Robert Santos. You, you had mentioned – is it Hennon? There's Christina Hagan. There is Lou Lyris, and then I think there's a handful, two or three maybe, from maybe Portage and Summit County as well in this race. But what are your initial thoughts on that? Uh, I was at a Geauga County Lincoln Day dinner. If you ever want to get involved with Republican politics, go to the Lincoln Day dinners. Each county has one. Uh, They raise money for the county party and their operations. And you meet a lot of people, right? And... um, I was at the GR and they mentioned Tim Ryan, that Tim Ryan, they think is beatable. And, you know, one of, they all, of course the Republicans are going to say we're going to beat Tim Ryan, but I do think that there's a feeling on the ground that like this guy is vulnerable. And if we pick the right candidate, maybe not this time, but maybe within the next two to four years. Right. So, um, I don't know. I, I just, they, they mentioned Trumbull County. Uh, at the Geauga County Lincoln Day Dinner. Actually, I saw a lot of Trumbull County people. And um, I don't know who the candidate will be. I think it will probably be Hagan because she is the uh, kind of the establishment candidate um, just because she's well-known. Yeah, I'm not saying that it, 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 she's the best known, right, of all the candidates yeah. from perspective of uh, the Republican Party candidate or the Republican Party. But um I, I think uh, we'll we'll be able we'll see, but I think that whoever runs, like there is a chance to beat Tim. I, I think he can definitely be beat. beat. Yeah, I, I, I for one, uh, full disclosure, I do have a Hagen sign. I never thought I'd have a Hagen sign in my front yard, but it is not yeah. for Bob or Michelle Hagen. Is this uh, Bob? What's that? Buckwheat Hagen. Buckwheat. Bob. <laughs> Remember, I mean. 
this is the difference between what's the difference between Bob Hagen and Dane Davis. Well, Dane Davis has never called any racial slurs to black people. Um, I treat all human beings with respect because we're all God's children. You can't say the same about Buckwheat Bob, who called a black man Buckwheat while at the Lemon Grove. Um, yeah, not nice. Sorry, go no, ahead. No, no, no. And it's, 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 there's a, I, I initially in one of our podcasts we had thought that maybe she would be able to pick off some people with just with the name, but I will say this: I have the sign in my front yard, and at the top in big bold letters it says "Pro Trump" at the top. So I don't think she's going to fool anybody in that regard. But I guess here's why I, I hope she wins. I guess for one, I, I agree. Maybe she's the establishment pick. I know Mary Taylor support her, and a lot of the county Republican people are support her. She's really not like an establishment type candidate in terms of her policy. She's actually very, very conservative on a lot of issues. Um, but my hope is that she wins and that by winning, she catches the eye of the major fundraising arms or maybe a political action committee, something in order for Tim Ryan to lose, somebody needs money. I thought DePizzo did as much as he could with virtually no money but I, I don't think you're going to get more than 40% of the vote unless there's 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 significant money dumped in, or maybe not even significant, just some money uh, thrown at this race. So I think that's number one. Number two is the question is how strong will Trump be in this particular district in 2020? I think he he may have uh, – I'd have to look, and I'll, I'll confirm this in a second. But I'm, I'm fairly certain he lost this district by maybe five or – um, five or six points in 2016 when you look at it from the presidential level and I am confirming that right now it was he lost at 5145 uh, but uh, Rep Republicans have won it John Kasich won it uh, his governor she seat in 2014 Rob Portman beat Ted Strickland 4846 in 2016 so the real question will be is Trump's support stronger than it was four years ago. And I'll be honest, I'm not real sure about that. Um, perhaps in certain parts of the district it is, uh, maybe not necessarily in others, other parts. Uh, so I think money plays a factor. It's nice to have a credible candidate who's actually won on the ballot before and has name recognition in some parts of the district. And then uh, I think third, just with, with, with Tim Ryan – dropping or, or leaving the state of the union and just how he's been acting his behavior uh of late if you if you could frame it right with the money you could paint him as being out of touch with our district and losing sight while our, our district has become more and more um i'll guess I, i'll say purple he has gone further and further to the left and and, and it just it's not uh did we ever talk about that? I, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Did we ever talk about the State of the Union and, and Tim No, Ryan? we have like, not. How fucking – pardon my location. That's hypocritical. Be how can you be? Okay? I get it. You don't like Trump. I get it. It's a rote political speech, but it's one hour and a half of your – one hour and 30 minutes of your time. Just sit through it, please, for the civility of the country, Right. Nancy Pelosi ripping up that speech was horrible. But then Tim Ryan left early and then tweeted it out. What a dumb move. What a dumb move. Sit there and listen to it. You're a congressman. You get paid nearly $200,000 a year. All you have to do is sit and listen to his speech. You don't like the guy? Fine. I get it. 
you can leave after it's over and then tweet to your heart's content about how much it sucks, right? But for the for for the love of God, why would you leave in the middle of this speech? What a rude and nasty thing. You know, Tim Ryan was the great moderate, right? Oh, I'm I'm pro life and I'm pro Second Amendment. Every Democrat that says they're pro life and pro Second Amendment, they're they're lying, right? They always switch as soon as they can, and then their real colors come out. And and Tim Ryan, oh, oh, I'm a great moderate to the point where I'm just gonna walk out. Her 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 her. What a fucking loser. All I have to say is I hope people weren't driving on the streets of D.C. after he walked out for their own safety because Tim doesn't have the best record with uh, handling alcohol. So I'll leave it. <laughs> it, it, it. What's funny is I don't know if, if, if people have looked at this district. It is, it's a very interesting drawn district, especially when it comes into Summit County. You have parts where you could be driving down the road and you're in the district and you could drive for five minutes and you're out and then you're back in it. It's really funky. I think – Hagen's chances would be better if more rural parts and what I mean by that like southern that southern swath of Mahoning County that allowed Michael Rooley and Don Manning to win for the most part all of that is excluded from this district and that's in uh, Bill Johnson's district so it would be tough but again Trump only lost his district by six points but the problem is you got parts of inner city Akron and inner city Youngstown in this in, in a lot of parts in between are Republican, but you really need to rack up those margins. And the question is, is again, can Trump rack up those margins in a, in a way to win the district? The only way Hagan would be able to win is if Trump wins this district and she finds a way to con- to, to latch on and, and is along for the ride. And, and hopefully that's enough to push her over the finish line. But w- we shall see. Wow. Wow. Well. We'll see. I'm 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 rooting for I'm rooting for whoever the Republican is. But. Yeah, I, I think when you have seven or eight people running, uh, it's going to be fascinating, especially on a county by county level. Hagen lives in Alliance, which is part of this district. So I don't know if she just moved there or what, because she she definitely ran in a diff, different district. I think two years ago and lost to uh, a, a Gonzalez, the former Ohio State football player that played for Trestle. Um, is it Anthony Gonzalez? Do you know offhand? Yeah, Anthony Gonzalez. Yeah, so yes, yeah, so she lost the the primary against him in in twenty eighteen. So I'm not sure how she was in that district, but she she does live in Alliance, which is in this district. Um, but will her lack of recon- name recognition uh, in Mahoning County and Trumbull County, where uh, I love this area to death, but some there are some people here who are very close-minded about outsiders coming in. And they just think their own the internal people are the way to go, and they're unwilling to change. So, hopefully, the Republicans, the ones who vote, are, are open-minded and give her a chance. But I think she'll have enough. I think she ekes it out for the simple fact that she was a state rep and she has the support of the the, the county Republican chair chairman and women and um yeah we shall see we shall see okay final topic and then we'll wrap yeah absolutely stouffer's uh french bread pizza i guess that's what you wanted to talk about (laughs) yeah so i was in walmart bought some stouffer french bread pizzas um look here's the thing i don't know why shaping them like you know a magnet or something (laughs) makes them taste so differently than a regular pizza but it does. It really does. Um, I, I, I like Stouffer French bread pizzas. They, I don't even consider them in the pizza genre. They just, 
they're it's own, they're their own category. You know yeah. what I mean? Like McNugget. A McNugget is not the same thing as a chicken tender. A McNugget is its own genre. It, it completely it stands alone. And Stouffer's French bread pizzas are the same thing to me. Yeah, and uh, before this episode, we were talking about this, and I hardly ever buy frozen food. But when I do buy frozen food, these are pretty much the only thing. I think there's this one, and then like there's another brand that I get at Target from time to time. It's like Uncle Baron. Essentially, they taste the exact same thing, so I feel like it's the same company producing it. Nonetheless, you are right. These things are different. I don't know if it's just the fact that you got the Italian on a French French bread, and they're just delicious, and I, I enjoy them. I know my one youngest brother hates them, uh, but I like them, and I think they're the perfect snack. That's why I like to have them in the freezer sometimes when I come home from work. Maybe my wife had leftovers or whatever, and I'll just pop one of those in the toaster oven 15, 20 minutes. It's a perfect type of a lunch or dinner just to fill my stomach, but I, I agree with you. They are pr- quite delicious. Um, do you use a toaster oven? I don't understand the point of a toaster oven. Well, yeah, I, I, I do because I don't like microwaves much. The only thing I use a microwave for is like to heat soup up. I don't like throwing anything that consists of bread in there. I just think it becomes very mushy and disgusting. So I kind of like throwing in the toaster oven on the bake setting, and then it gives a nice crunch when it comes out. That's just me personally. It's a little pet peeve of mine. But Michael, why not just use the oven? Well, I could, but I feel like the toaster oven heats up quicker. So when I'm hungry, I'm hungry, and I want to eat quicker. And I never follow – that's another thing. I never follow the instructions on these things. It might say to put it in for 25 minutes at 400. I'll just nuke the freaking uh, thing and put it on as high as possible in the toaster oven, and after 15 minutes, it's warm enough for me, and I eat it. Wow. I'm a rebel. Wow, I uh, I don't do that. I, I follow the instruction. Although this one said to cook it for twenty four minutes, and I cooked it for like twenty two, and it it came out really burnt. I was going to say um, it seems quite long. Some of these to put in that long. So wow. Well, I'm glad. Uh, yours with cheese or with pepperoni? I sort of like the pepperoni. I I have had the cheese ones, but I do like the pepperoni, especially if it's just. It's what's interesting is when you take it out of the plastic. Somehow that pepperoni. Can find a way to stay on there. Um, they're the little. They're like cut into fours. At least the ones that I get. Uh, but if it if it stays on there and you cook it in the toaster oven, it gets a nice crunch to it. <laughs> wow, I don't even have a toaster. Maybe I'm too poor to afford one. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's very uh, middle class. <laughs> very much so. So, uh, but yeah, I love uh, I love my French bread pizzas. They're uh, p- a perfect snack. Uh, I would say. Well, this episode was brought to you by Stouffer's French Bread Pizzas, the perfect snack for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Stouffer's. And, yes, yeah, so uh, I do want to say thank you to everybody for tuning in. We've been, I know a lot of people have been asking me when the next episode is. And uh, for those of you who may not know, I am a, a CPA that is in the heart of tax season. And I know, Dane, you're, you're busy too with your family and work. It's uh, just been a kind of a challenging time to find find the perfect time and day uh, to record these. But I wanted to get one in because there's so much going on on the political front. We wanted to to share our thoughts, and uh, we'll try our, our very 
uh, best. Maybe we could have another. When's the when's the Repub- when do the, we vote? Uh, I think it's St. Patrick's Day, so maybe we could have one before St. Patrick's Day. Kind of share our thoughts on the state of the race and give our predictions on a state level as to where we uh, see things shaping up. Because uh, I think a lot will happen between now and, and St. Patrick's Day. I, I think so. Too. I think that'd be good. Yeah, let's get one before, and then I'd like to do another one after uh, March seventeenth. Uh, because there's the there are the Ohio primaries, um, and I I'll probably have some commentary. So one before and one after would be great. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, once April rolls around, I'll have much 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 more time to to dedicate to this, and we'll have hopefully a lot to discuss over this over the summer. And um, my brother and I I'll share this little tidbit. My brother and my cousin did go to the Republican headquarters and, and got a business card for the young young girl who's heading up Trump's campaign in Northeast Ohio. Got her business card. So I'd like to try to get some guests on, and I think she would be kind of a, a fascinating one. On I think she's from like Alabama or whatever. So I'm kind of curious to hear how she ended up in Northeast Ohio running his campaign at such a young age. So I'd like to get some guests on and kind of make a. Uh, even get some other people on. Maybe my my brother and cousin would love to chime in. Some other people, just so uh, you know, keep it keep keep it lively and hear some other thoughts because it's kind of tough when it's a podcast. It's two people talk radio. You get people calling in, so we'll uh, we'll, we'll work on that here in the months ahead. Yeah, I think we we get some, we need some more guests to spice this up. Absolutely, uh, you know we are quite interesting and. And uh, people people do love us, but uh, I'm sure uh, they'd be they'd be welcome and to to hear some other people as well. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michael, as always. Yeah, and thank you everybody for listening. Hopefully, you like this podcast. Tell all your coworkers, your friends, family who like politics to give it a listen, and, and uh, we encourage you to certainly share it on social media. Uh, it's a it's a nightmare anymore to to promote anything on social media with political, especially on Facebook. They make it is so difficult to advertise anything anymore. Um, I could explain it in another episode, but thank you, Russia, for that because that's the reason why I'm having a tough time promoting our, our podcasts on on Facebook. But I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Dane. Hopefully, uh, you have a good week, and we'll see how Super Tuesday shapes up. So, okay, Michael. All right, thanks, everybody. Don't get Corona. Bye. Okay, bye.